As you are seated, it's my privilege to welcome to the pulpit, no stranger to us, a son of the congregation, Ryan McCormick. Ryan. Thanks, Jay. Uh, the scripture reading uh, for this morning that I'll be preaching on is Philippians 3, uh, 7 through 21. Philippians 3, 7 through 21. And as you turn there, I just want to say thank you for having me here to preach again. It's always such a pleasure to be back at Westminster. Uh, I always remember my time here so fondly. Um, there are times I'm discouraged in ministry. I always think of uh, how I began here, and it's it's always a very uh, a very uh, cheering uh, experience for me to think back on those times. So Philippians three. Verses 7 through 21. But whatever it was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, having a righteousness of my own that comes, that comes not from the law, but that which is through Jesus Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already attained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have been taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. For all of us who are mature should take such a view of things, and if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Join with others in following my example, brothers, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven." And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and accepting in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. And so another Christmas season is now in the process of winding down. Uh, Before you know it, the Christmas trees will be beside the curb, the decorations will be returned to their boxes in the attic, um, and the Christmas music will stop playing on the radio. My wife and I were talking on our way back uh, to Philadelphia this week how uh, there is always a bit of a letdown once Christmas is over, isn't there? Um, Christmas is followed by that long stretch of three months filled with cold and snow and where the most exciting thing that happens is President's Day. 
Uh, during that season, we can feel a bit like uh, we're in the White Witch's Narnia of C.S. Lewis as the lion, the witch, in the wardrobe. It is always winter and never Christmas. And I mention this because I think that something is true of our spiritual lives that go through different seasons, uh, just like the, there are different seasons in a year. There's a season of our spiritual life that is like Christmas or a holiday, where our lives are filled with peace and joy and abundance. But then those can be abruptly followed by stretches of life that are seasons, rather, of spiritual darkness and cold, a kind of winter time for our soul. These are seasons that involve suffering, malaise, loneliness, depression, unhappiness, anxiety, fear, and guilt. These are seasons are as unavoidable as the months of January through March. In fact, they're even more inevitable because there's no spiritual equivalent of flying down to Florida for the winter. We can't evade these, inexpl- we can't evade these inexplicable periods where our faith grows cold and we are overwhelmed by anxiety, doubts, or melancholy. Melancholy. We face illness. We lose people or relationships that are dear to us. We experience failure. The Christmas story itself points to the inevitability of suffering. Uh, in the traditional church calendar, the end of the 12 days of Christmas is the Feast of Epiphany. And Epiphany is where uh, the church has traditionally celebrated the coming of the Magi uh, to visit Jesus. And uh, one of the gifts, of course, that the Magi bring Jesus is myrrh. Now, myrrh was used in ancient times for burial. It was a perfume that people would put on a body to mask the smell of the corpse. It's for this reason uh, that Joseph of Arimathea, when he anointed Christ's body uh, with his burial, he anointed it with myrrh before placing it in the tomb. And so uh, the gift of, of myrrh by the Magi has been something that has been traditionally understood uh, to be a foreshadowing of the suffering and death of Christ. And so the Christmas story, like Christmas time itself, braces us for a dark season ahead. The question for us is, how do we understand these seasons, and how do we prepare for them? How do we endure them when they arrive, and how do we find hope on the other side of them? There's no better place to look than in the writings of Paul, St. Paul was no stranger to suffering. The letter of Philippians that I read from this morning was written from a jail, where death was a very real possibility for Paul. And yet, Paul writes in Philippians that he has found the secret to enduring suffering, and even rejoicing in the midst of his suffering. And the secret is this. Paul has discovered that a Christian is someone who has conformed his or her own life to the shape of Christ's own life, has conformed it to a pattern of dying and rising, death and resurrection. Paul is able to put his own suffering in context. The way of the, the, way of the cross is also the way of eternal life. And so this morning, as we are mourning the end of the Christmas season and preparing for the months ahead, I want us to think about how we can prepare for the dark night of the soul by looking at Paul's death in Christ and Paul's resurrection in Christ. Paul's death in Christ and Paul's resurrection in Christ. So first, dying in Christ. Paul says that the first leg of the journey in following Christ 
is to share in Christ's suffering and death, to have fellowship in these things. Now, this sounds morbid, harsh even, that in order to arrive at happiness, we have to endure sadness. The idea that the road to a life of joy and peace begins with suffering and death runs entirely contrary to the conventional wisdom of our own society. If you go to a bookstore, even probably most Christian bookstores, and you look at the practical books on uh, religion and spirituality, on self-help, on lifestyle, none of them start with suffering and death. All of them start with optimism. They tell you that God has a great plan for your life, uh, that God wants you to be happy and that he will bless you. They tell you that you can do it, uh, that you need to find the strength within. All very optimistic things. But that's not where Paul starts. And he says that we can't stop there, start there because that's not honesty. It's not reality. That's not where we are as human beings. As men and women, we don't start in a place of abundance, of assurance for God's love for us. And so Paul says that you have to start by being honest about this fact. You have to start by acknowledging that we are in a condition that can only be described as a state of death. There is evil in the world. There is evil inside our own hearts. And there is suffering in the world. All you have to do is scroll through your news feed or watch the news in order to see this. We live in a fallen world. And if we want to be saved from that condition, we have to first face that condition. And so Paul expresses eagerness at embracing the cross set before him, not because he is a masochist who loves pain and suffering, nor because he takes pain and suffering lightly. Paul says that he wants to share in Christ's suffering and death because that is the place where our life and Christ's life intersect. It's that part of Christ's own life that is closest and most real to our own. A person rising from the dead seems incredible to us, does it not? But that someone would suffer and die is all too believable to us. And so in the parlance of traditional Christian spirituality, we endure seasons of desolation. To be desolate means to be barren, lifeless, lifeless, to feel abandoned. These are the seasons when God does not feel close, when the burdens of life weigh down upon us. The suffering we might encounter might be physical, emotional, spiritual, or relational. It can be internal, it can be external. Uh, there, uh, there's the English poet William Cooper who wrote uh, hymns such as, There is a fountain filled with blood who suffered a number of bouts when he was convinced, uh, bouts of depression that is, where he was convinced that he was damned to hell. There have been points in my own life where I have experienced overwhelming anxiety and doubts. I feel like the certainties of life, of God's presence, have been swept out from under me. It's hard to pray to read scripture. I fear that everything is meaningless in life. These are the dark seasons of desolation. And so we can only overcome our condition in this fallen world by confronting these seasons. And we confront them by, by using them for, as an opportunity for our own spiritual growth. A helpful analogy might be uh, cancer treatment. Uh, cancer treatment involves things like chemotherapy uh, that cures cancerous cells by killing them. 
to heal a sick body with cancer, a body has to be subjected to suffering. And we would be foolish to refuse this life-saving treatment on the grounds that it is unpleasant. Death is far more unpleasant. In the same way, restoring our souls to health means that we must first, spiritually speaking, to be put to death. To receive the life of Christ, we must first be emptied. As I said, seasons of desolation are inevitable. The question is whether such events are redemptive or destructive to our souls. In verses 8, 3, and 2, 19, Paul mentioned that those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, uh, Paul mentions uh, those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. Uh, When he says that they're enemies of the cross, he doesn't mean generically that they are enemies of the Christian religion. Um, At at the time that Paul's writing, the cross is not yet a symbol of the Christian faith um, as it is now, where um, you you wear crosses or put crosses on church as a symbol. Rather, uh, what he means here is that people, uh, these people find the idea of following a crucified Messiah abhorrent. Ancient people saw crucifixions all the time. They knew what a gory and shameful spectacle it was. And they wanted no part in following a crucified Messiah. They wanted something much more pleasant. It's for this reason that Paul says that their stomach is their God. That is, their God is is comfort and their own desire for pleasure. They don't want to share in the sufferings of a crucified Messiah. But Paul says that their end is destruction. Like a cancer patient who refuses treatment on the grounds that it is painful, these people exchange present suffering for a much greater death in the future. Jesus himself put this paradox so pithily when he said, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will gain it. So salvation doesn't mean evading periods of suffering. Rather, salvation makes use of periods of suffering for our own sanctification. How do we do that? Well, first, dying in Christ teaches us humility. It is often said that you can't get humility without humiliation. Seasons of desolation expose our own weaknesses and sin, do they not? They empty us of our pride and our illusions about our own goodness, competence, and power. When life is going well, we think that we have total control over our lives. We think that every good thing that happens to us is a result of our own doing and effort. Maybe we think that we're smart, that we have life figured out. Maybe we think that we're good and upright people who are so morally superior to those bad people that don't have their lives together. But seasons of desolation tell us otherwise. They tell us that we are not in total control, that 99.9% of the events that happen around us are beyond our agency. Cancer, an economic recession, a political crisis, getting laid off because your place of employment has shuttered. We are powerless before these things. In such moment, life gets turned upside down for us, and all of our wisdom, our intelligence, count for nothing. And in those moments, the weakness of our own strength is often exceeded only by the weakness of our own character. Circumstances reveal our true nature. 
in periods of desolation, we come to the grips with how mercenary our love for God really is. How quickly we abandoned him at the first sign of trouble. The first sign that God is not giving us what we want. We come to grips with how badly we can act towards others whenever we are under distress. The ways that we can harm others, lash out at them, use them for our own gain. The humiliation of desolation teaches us humility. It forces us to recognize our impotence and our own capacity for vice. Paul writes in this passage that through the suffering he has experienced, he has come to see the futility of his own self-sufficiency. Previously, he had taken great pride in his own abilities and achievements. He was proud that he was a Hebrew, that he strictly kept the law, that he was a Pharisee. But Paul's great realization was that his own efforts at law-keeping, his own identity as a Jew, his own place in his society counted absolutely nothing towards his salvation. He realized that nothing we can do or possess can save us from the inability of suffering and death. Do you learn humility when you suffer? Do you reflect on how your own faults have contributed to your failings? Have you reckoned with your own imperfections and tragic flaws? Have you realized how circumstances of life are beyond our ability to control perfectly and that you are not your own savior? When we suffer, it is easy to acquire a sense of victimization because often we are victims of malice. In such circumstances, it is easy to become bitter and resentful. But Paul tells us that our immediate response should be to turn to humility, to soul-searching. We cannot fully understand, let alone control, the events that happen around us. But one thing that we can know and control immediately is our own soul. It's for this reason that the theologian John Calvin said uh, that self-knowledge is only second to knowledge of God and importance when it comes to gaining wisdom. And in fact, he wondered whether we can even gain a full knowledge of God without also knowing ourselves. So, this is the first use of suffering as an invitation to know yourself, to know your smallness, and to reckon with the darkness of our own hearts. Second, Sharing in the death of Christ brings us to realize our need for repentance. If we have good sense, repentance should follow naturally from humility. Repentance simply means turning our hearts around. Once we know ourselves through suffering, then we are able to identify the idols of our own heart. Our idols are just those things that I mentioned above. Um, Our own, uh, the things that we rely upon to save ourselves rather than God. They're money, control, power, status, even our moral uprightness. Suffering, Suffering reveals that these gods are false gods because they cannot deliver us from the worst aspects of life. That's why Paul writes in verses 7 through 8 that part of the secret of salvation that he has learned from Christianity is that he must renounce the things that he had previously put all of his trust in. In the past, Paul thought that his ethnicity, his obedience to the law, his status as a zealous and intelligent leader uh, of the Jewish community were all things to be counted on, to put stock in. 
But now, Paul says, he has come to see them as rubbish. He sees them as worthless. None of them have value in providing him with salvation from the curse of death itself. Therefore, Paul says, the only logical action to take is to renounce these idols, to turn from them. But this is difficult. And typically, we could only bear to do this whenever we come to face to face with their own utter futility. You see, it's one thing to know yourself. It's another thing to take action on the basis of this knowledge. Stress and suffering reveal our flaws. The question is, are you willing to change in light of those flaws? Changing our hearts is even more painful than self-knowledge. Paul calls it elsewhere, crucifying the flesh. This is why the prophet Joel Joel called the Israelites to rend your hearts and not your garments. It is easy to make a show of our humility uh, by tearing at our clothes. Much harder and much more necessary is tearing your own heart away from your idols. And so Paul understands that suffering can be a kind of discipline that weans us from these idols. Learning the folly of idolatry through suffering is the story of the younger brother in in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, is it not? The younger son is arrogant, dissolute, selfish. He doesn't love his father, but rather only his father's possessions. And so the loving discipline of the father is this that he lets him take his share of inheritance to go off into a far country where he squanders it and is reduced to poverty. And it's only when he falls all the way down to the bottom to becoming a worker on a pig farm, so ruined that he craves the pods that the pigs are fed upon, that he comes to his sentences, senses. It is in this suffering that he learns his need to repent, to go off and to seek the forgiveness of his, of his father. Do we have the courage that Paul lays out here, the courage to tear our hearts from our idols? In seasons of desolation, can we look at our achievements, our reputation, our possessions, like the house we, bought, house we own or the car we drive, uh, the leaders we follow, even the good works that we perform, and can we call them all rubbish? Paul tells us that we must do this if suffering is to be redemptive rather than destructive for us. And third and finally, therefore, suffering makes us realize our need for a savior. We can only turn from our futile ways by turning from them and towards Christ. In moments of desolation, we recognize our profound need for grace. When everything we possess fails us, this is the time when we are forced to look look for something greater than ourselves and greater than our own suffering to save us. The poet W.H. Auden wrote in his Christmas poem, For the Time Being, this, quote, Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. So when Paul talks about sharing in Christ's suffering and death, of having fellowship in them, he's not talking about personal heroism. That would just be another idol of our own making. 
Paul says that he has renounced any claim to having a righteousness of his own, one that comes from his practice of the law, from his own achievements, or from his own status. Instead, he seeks a righteousness that comes from faith in Christ, that is the gracious gift of God. By dying in Christ, the gift of faith is perfected in us because faith renounces that our own efforts have any ultimate efficacy. Faith is a passive act, an action that is paradoxically inactive because faith is receiving. Faith is the open palm. It is not taking or grasping because we know our own reach is impotent, but rather receiving what is placed in its hands as a gift. Faith is being open to receiving the saving action of God. When we are emptied of all pride and conceit through suffering, then we are ready to be filled with the life and grace of Christ Jesus. And so this leads us to consider, lastly, the hope that gets us through seasons of desolation. The only way that human beings can endure terrible misery is when we look to something bigger than ourselves. Viktor Frankl was an Austrian psychiatrist and a Holocaust survivor, and he wrote in the years following World War II that the one thing that enabled people to endure the terrible suffering and dehumanization of the concentration camps with their spirit intact was their ability to find ultimate meaning in the midst of their suffering and to latch on to a future hope. For the survivors, that was the only way that they could come out of an experience like that and not be bitter, cynical, and despairing towards life. The glad tidings that we celebrate on Christmas is that there is a hope to be found amid the ruins of life. It is a hope that is far greater and far more power than the secular versions of optimism that people turn to in times of trouble. A hope that salvation is not found within ourselves, but from without ourselves from the grace of God bestowed on us through the advent of Christ. In the Christmas poem by W.H. Auden that I quoted earlier, there are these wonderful lines. In our bath or the subway or the middle of the night, we know very well that we are not unlucky but evil, that the dream of a perfect state or no state at all to which we fly for refuge is part of our punishment. Let us therefore be contrite but without anxiety. For the powers and times are not God's, but mortal gifts from God. Let us acknowledge our defeats, but without despair. For all societies and epics are transient details, transmitting an everlasting opportunity that the kingdom of heaven may come, not in our present and not in our future, but in the fullness of time. Our hope is found in our faith in the Incarnation, that in the fullness of time, God himself has descended into the deepest darkness of our lives through the life and birth of his Son. God does not stand aloof from human suffering. He has not abandoned us to our affliction and our alienation from him. He has become one with us, one with the human condition. He has borne our nature along with all of its attendant ailments, sorrows, and ultimately even its mortality. He has borne the impotence of human striving, the guilt of our own moral failures, even the curse of God-forsakenness itself. This is the hope that we celebrate at Christmas, the hope that we carry with us into the darkness, 
One of the most beautiful sights at the time of Christmas is the lights. The Christmas tree shining in the corner of a darkened room. The candles on the night of Christmas Eve. This is the beauty of Isaiah's prophecy. That the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Because of all of this, if you suffer in Christ, then periods of suffering and doubt and pain take on a new meaning. Or to perhaps put it better, they cease to be meaningless. They become no less spiritual than the moments when you are filled with joy, peace, and abundance, because God has joined such moments to the death of his own son. And so we should not feel abandoned by God in the moments of darkness, no matter how strong that temptation might be. Even in our darkest moments, in the moments of our most absolute failure, God is there. In fact, he is especially there, because that is where Christ Jesus is at. It's where Christ can be found most immediately. And so we are able to confront the most awful moments that life throws at us because we know that we will meet Christ there, that scenes of suffering are transformed into images of our crucified Lord and Savior. And when we find Christ in our suffering, when we let our illusions about our own goodness, power, and competence die at the foot of the cross, and when we find our hope and trust in our crucified Savior, that is the moment where life is overcome, where death is overcome by life. And so that leads us to consider, secondly, rising in Christ, our resurrection. The hope of the gospel is that all death <coughs> is succeeded by resurrection. Christ not only bore our sin and death, he overcame them. What what is mortal, Paul writes in another one of his letters, is swallowed up by immortality. Death is overcome by life. Death is drowned in eternal life. St. Augustine put the work of Christ like this. This life of ours descended here and took our death upon himself and slew it with the abundance of his life. Therefore, though the gospel forces us to confront the darkness of human experience, it does not let us remain there. The reason Paul says that he has willingly suffered the loss of all things is so that he can gain Christ and to know the power of his resurrection. He has shared in Christ's sufferings, becoming what like him in his very death, so that, he writes, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Emptied of all pride and vanity of our old selves, we are ready to be filled with the life of Christ and to be resurrected as a whole brand new self. And thus the idea of resurrection in the New Testament is about more than just immortality, of living forever. Resurrection means nothing less than to share in the eternal life of God himself. This is the life that was made manifested by the Spirit of God when he he raised Christ from the dead. It is the life that we are joined to when that same Spirit dwells within us. It is that life that endures through all suffering and survives death itself because it is the life that comes from the power and the presence of an eternal and unchanging God. 
If sharing in Christ's suffering and death brought desolation, then sharing in the resurrection of Christ brings consolation. Now, when we talk about consolation, um, we're typically talking about comforting someone when they're grieving. Uh, we're trying to alleviate the pain and the suffering that they're going through, even though there's a recognition that nothing we can do or say can really make up for that grief. But when the Christian spiritual masters of old talked about consolation, they were talking more about something than sharing our thoughts and prayers with another person. They spoke of experiencing a state of bliss that not only mitigates our grief, but actually undoes grief itself. Resurrection means, as incredible as it sounds, that everything sad will come untrue. Every tear is wiped from every eye, and the former things themselves, the things of suffering and death and pain, will pass away, dissolved by the light of God's presence. C.S. Lewis writes in The Great Divorce, They say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it, not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. It sounds incredible, does it not? And yet, the future has a way of changing the past, doesn't it? Such that an ultimate truth about any moment, including our moments of deepest suffering, cannot be fully grasped in the present. What do I mean by this? Well, take a movie, for example, or a book. In the first three quarters of the story, lots of terrible things might happen to the protagonists. We might think that story is a tragedy, therefore, But if in the final act, there is a reversal of fortunes, the problem is solved, and everyone lives happily ever after, that changes the meaning of everything that has gone before, doesn't it? A sad story is suddenly and magically transformed into a happy one. That is how resurrection works. It redeems everything bad by bringing good out of it. As Paul puts it in another one of his letters, this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And yet we would be wrong, however, to think of this resurrection as a purely future hope. While our ultimate resurrection, a final end to all suffering, a beatitude that atones for all grief, awaits the second coming of Christ, The power of eternal life is at work in us even now, Paul tells us. Resurrection, you see, happens in two stages. Before the final regeneration of all things, there is first the regeneration of our souls, what Paul calls the inner person. We can think of the power of eternal life as something that begins on the inside and then spreads outwards. Paul writes of this force of life at work in us in 2 Corinthians by saying this, that though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And so even while we are in the midst of this mortal life, in the midst of suffering, we have a present consolation. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God, united to Christ, and the peace and love of God our Father abides in our souls through that union. That is a joy that suffering and even death itself cannot take from us. And so it's true that life is not a straight, linear line of spiritual progress. It is, to an extent, cyclical. There are alternating seasons of desolation and consolation, many occasions for rising and dying. 
Paul admits here that he himself is not yet perfect. He has not experienced a complete end of trials and tribulations of suffering and sin. But one thing I do, he writes, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the heavenward call of God and Jesus Christ. And so even through the ups and downs of our spiritual life, through the constant cycles of abundance and want, joy and sorrow, we do experience genuine upward spiritual progress. We do find genuine hope. Because though the outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Day by day, through the power of resurrection at work within us, we rise upward toward God, experiencing his presence and his love ever more deeply and profoundly. And so there is a life for us to live in the present, a life lived by the power of Christ's resurrection. It means accepting with joy the gifts that God bestows on us, It means that in times of abundance, we embrace those moments as a foretaste of the eternal bliss that Christ has won for us. We live not with pride or arrogance, but with gratitude. Gratitude at the presence of God who is with us in the heights and depths, the breaths and lengths of this world, even in its imperfections. The spirit of joy and gratitude that we receive is also a vessel that we can carry with us into new moments of suffering when they visit us again. But this time, we will already have a head start. We are already familiar with this path, and we know that the darkness does not last forever, but there is light, that there is always life after death. Then our sorrows are not wasted on bitterness or fear or pity, because we possess evermore that spirit that Paul describes at the end of Philippians when he says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him that strengthens me. May the grace of God give us the ability to follow Paul in this way to follow God, to find peace and joy even in the midst of our sufferings by the power of Christ's resurrection. Please pray with me. God, our Father, we are thankful of this season for the advent of Christ, uh, for the light and life that has dawned in a dark world. I pray that uh, that light would shine upon our souls, that it would carry with us uh, in the week and in the months ahead as we follow you and do your will. I pray that we would be a people that see your face um, and that know your power and your love. I pray this in the name of your Son, Christ Jesus, in his name that we pray. Amen.